Our featured BBB Wise Giving Alliance accredited charity seal holders for this episode are Move United, National Council on Aging, National Breast Cancer Coalition. You can find out more about these and other BBB Wise Giving Alliance accredited charity seal holders at give.org. You're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor, powered by BBBgive.org. Here we explore the motivations that form the basis of giving and service. We inspire generosity and celebrate the transformative effects that giving and service have on the human spirit and on community. The conversations featured on the podcast also uncover giving strategies that educate and provide tools to help listeners make impactful gifts of both their time and money. We hope you enjoy this episode. This is the Heart of Giving podcast, powered by BBBgive.org. Give.org is the nation's standards-based charity evaluator, and it's your one-stop source for information on giving and reports on the most asked about charities. I'm Art Taylor. Last week on our show, we had Donald Summers, who took us through a conversation about a new book that he had written called Scaling Altruism. My immediate thought when I saw the title of Donald's book was that he would be speaking about the effective altruism work that's going on in some circles in the nonprofit sector. Well, that wasn't necessarily the case, although we got into a little bit of distinguishing his work from that. But today, we have someone who is more genuinely connected to the effective altruism work, and we're going to talk with him about his journey, which is really unusual coming from corporate America in a major capacity. And so we're going to be speaking today with Charlie Bresler. Charlie, I want to welcome you to the Heart of Giving podcast. Thank you, Art. It's a pleasure to be here. Give us some background. Give us some history of how you got from one place to the next. Let me start back when I was in university. When I was in university, I became very active in the anti-Vietnam War movement, as well as the civil rights movement. And I think that has informed a lot of my thinking throughout my life. So I went out of college and I went to graduate school and I thought, well, okay, I love history, but I can't get a job probably if I get my PhD in history. So what I'll do is get my master's in history and education, and then I'll be able to teach secondary school because there were no jobs in modern European or modern American history at the time that I graduated in 1971. So I went to Harvard and got my master's in history and education being rather pragmatic, which is probably a theme in my life, even though it is kind of disjointed. And at Harvard, I studied history and uh, education. And then I taught secondary school for three years, trying to convey some of my thinking about how to improve the equality in the world. I think that's a general theme. When I Not only when I look back of it, but how I thought about it at the time, that I was very interested in not only racial equality, but economic equality. In those days, we didn't think as much about gender equality, but I did teach a course on women's history. So I was focused also on gender equality, but it wasn't as much a, a theme, I would say, back in the early 70s. 
And then after three years of teaching secondary school, I said to myself, gee, Charlie, I don't think this is for you. I really did not feel like I fit in. I kind of remembered I didn't like high school when I went there. And now all of a sudden I'm teaching high school. So I decided that I was not going to do that. So something you weren't aware of art is I ended up becoming a tennis pro and rekindling my love of tennis. And I managed a tennis club and taught tennis and played a lot of tennis tournaments. And in a sense, you could say I dropped out. I really wasn't doing much to have an impact in the world um, other than a few odd tennis students. And uh, so it was really a self-indulgent period, which is another theme, I think, that we'll capture later on uh, when you in the in the podcast. And after my wife got into to medical school, I said to myself, I don't think, Charlie, you have the ability to handle being a bunch of arrogant doctors, being around them all the time, and just being a kind of second-rate tennis pro. Um, and at that time, I was working in community mental health as a psych tech. I said, that's not going to work for you. Your ego just not strong enough. So I went and got my PhD in clinical and social psychology. And after doing that, I got a job at the California School of Professional Psychology as a head of, as the director of behavioral medicine. Um, and I taught there for seven years in Fresno, California. And it was a really interesting period of time for me. We had two children by this time, focused on my children. I started running marathons, didn't play much tennis, but really had a sort of insular existence and didn't, again, feel like I was making much of an impact in the world through my teaching. But then, oddly enough, in, I guess it was 1992, my wife and I decided we had to get out of Fresno. I don't know if any of your listeners, I don't mean to be insulting, know about Fresno, California, but it's roughly 40 degrees centigrade or 100 and some odd degrees Fahrenheit through most of the summer. And there wasn't much to do with our kids except go to the fish hatchery, which they got bored with after a while. So we decided to move to the Bay Area. And my wife, as a family physician, got a job easily. And I said, don't worry, I'll figure something out. And I got an offer from a psychiatric clinic to start an anxiety and stress disorders clinic to mirror the work I'd been doing in Fresno with graduate students in treating obsessive compulsive disorder and agoraphobia. And I didn't want to start the clinic, but it seemed like, okay, I needed to make a living. So I probably should go ahead and do that. And then an old friend of mine, George Zimmer, from middle school and high school um, and from my freshman year in college, contacted me through a weird set of circumstances and asked me if I wanted to come to the men's warehouse and start a training program. Now, you can imagine the leap from social activist to training in a largely for-profit public company but I guess I was capable of handling a lot of what psychologists might refer to as cognitive dissonance. And so I said, sure, George, if you'll pay me more than I was going to make for the anxiety clinic, being quite mercenary, I'll do it. And he said, okay. And we agreed on my compensation, actually a five-year package at the time because he didn't like executives having to negotiate all the time. So I said, that's great. I feel good about that. And turned out that the behavioral program that I started based upon the work that I had been doing as a psychologist and the work I did in graduate school, raised the average transaction 13%. Wow. Now, if anybody in your audience knows anything about retail, when you have 100 stores growing to 650 stores by the time I left, if you take the average transaction and raise it by 13% without any raise in prices, that's quite an accomplishment. That's amazing. I don't know 
how this program was that successful. I could go over it. It would bore your listeners if I did, but it was just simple social psychology applied to a retail context. So even though I'd never had any business courses and I, I did have a lot of leadership training and probably some decent interpersonal skills, I, as Arch said in the introduction, I rose up in the company and ended up running the stores. By the time I left, we had 650, the marketing department and the human resource department and eventually became president. And it was just what I would call dumb luck and found money. I never expected to have any money, but <laughs> the nature of American private public companies, as, as you know, overpay executives and underpay everybody else. So I was one of the overpaid executives. So in 2008, I said, to, I was 59 years old, which makes me 74 right now. I said to myself, geez, Charlie, if you don't do something to live those values you talked about when you were in university, you're never going to do it. So I screwed up my courage and went into George's office and told him I was leaving, that I didn't want to be there anymore, that I really appreciated the opportunity. I then went through the board and the board and George and I agreed on a place where I would still consult, which gave me an income, but I wouldn't be doing a lot of day-to-day -day work. And I did a couple of HR consulting gigs as a volunteer for some really interesting people, uh, one in the nonprofit world, one in the sort of what you would call social impact world. I don't think we have time for me to get into that. But then in 2012, which is really relevant to this podcast, I read a book by Peter Singer called The Life You Can Save. And it wasn't an epiphany for me reading that book. It was just catalytic in the sense of, okay, this is it. If you can help Peter Singer form a proper organization and spread these ideas, then that will be a way of living out some of the values that you had professed. So I wrote Peter Singer, who was a famous philosopher, an email. And I had never heard of Peter Singer. I'd never read much philosophy. But I sent him an email and said that I would like to help him start a proper organization as a nonprofit. Would he be interested in my wife and I contributing the money to do that and build a small staff? And after conversations with Peter, we agreed to do it. And in 2013, the life you can save with Peter's name and the brand and my assistance became a proper nonprofit, the goal of which was really twofold and continues to be twofold. One is spreading the idea that if you give in a considered high impact way, meaning you research charities and you look at what you're, where you're giving and where they can do the most good, which in our world is overseas, where a dollar goes much further. We are trying to get people to give to a list of charities that we curate. There's 27 right now across different causes. And we are also, we in 2019, we bought back the rights of Peter's book, The Life You Can Save from Random House which was kind of an interesting discussion between Peter and me because he didn't want us to spend $33,000 buying back the book rights. And I said, Peter, you're crazy. I mean, that's going to be the best deal you ever had. We can distribute this book for free around the world, get it translated into different languages. And this is the idea that's been catalytic for many people in the effective altruist movement. And this is how you're moving hundreds of millions of dollars to people living in extreme poverty. So wasn't that hard to convince Peter. I'm making myself the hero of this story. It was kind of a no-brainer. You've given me a lot to unpack. So let me first start with, you are a poster child for Michael Clinton's 
roar forward into your next chapter of your life. And I'll tell you just a bit about Michael Clinton, but he was also a former guest on the podcast. And Michael was an executive at Hearst Publications and sought to begin transforming how people change their lives at different moments based on what's going on in the world and what they feel they need to do. And you are a poster child for people who've figured out that I need to be doing something else with my life at this point, particularly past 50 years old. And so we got to get you two connected for one thing. Michael was a former student of mine at Columbia University School of Professional Studies, but he's a brilliant man and he's doing great work at Roar. So that's one thing. Second thing is this idea of curating a list of charities is really fascinating because in order to do that, you have to have a point of view about what constitutes giving to organizations and the value, relative value of those gifts. And what I'd like to figure out from you, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about is on what basis do you decide which groups make the list and which ones don't? Because there's obviously millions of charitable organizations around the world. And we have our own list at the Wise Giving Alliance, but our list is based on some basic accountability attributes that we look for in organizations so that people can give with some degree of information about their trustworthiness. We don't, we're pretty agnostic about the type of charitable work they're doing. We're more concerned about, are they structured to actually accomplish the things that they, they're promising? It seems that your work as an altruist is more focused on how do we extend the dollar and the value of those gifts relative to what they can achieve. So I want you to tell us about how a group makes your list and how it doesn't. Well, first of all, let me agree with you that there are a lot of really great charities around the world that are doing amazing work that we don't have on our list. So the first thing to realize, and you pointed to this, Art, is that our list starts with the assumption that all lives are equal in value all things being equal. I mean, my life is not worth the same as a five-year-old child because of the number of years that I have likely to live, assuming that that five-year-old child lives in reasonably decent conditions. But all lives, regardless of where people live, are of equal value. So we don't subscribe to the idea that charity begins at home, for example, in the United States. We believe that a dollar goes much further. We know that a dollar goes much further in sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. So we start the curation process with the lens that we're only going to be look at charities that are doing their work in sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. We also try to use the same lens that you're talking about, Art, about responsibility, using the money the way they say they use the money, having a proper structure for implementing what they say they're implementing. And then we look at the tractability, meaning is the problem capable of being solved or fixed, or can they do what they say they're going to do? The room for funding, will the dollars that our donors make a difference for these specific nonprofits to enable them to do their work? So transparency, meaning they're very clear with how they're doing what they're doing, which I think you're also talking about, Art. 
mm-hmm. is another factor. But there are so many great charities, even in sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. So we have a subset of charities that we've been able to research through third parties as well as original research. And then they meet these criteria, which we have a document that we could provide any of your listeners if they want, which is a charity evaluation framework that lays this out in a much more articulate way than I did. And if you had Katie Stanford, our head of research and evaluation on the podcast at some point, she could do a much better job of talking about the curation process. But I think for for the purposes of this discussion, the listeners are getting the main idea that it has to be an organization that does what they say they're going to do and is solving a problem that we think really matters and that is solvable at the level of the intervention. So I can give you some examples of the cause areas that we work in. The main cause area that we work in is health. So one of the reasons we work in that area is that it's much easier to measure the outcome of the work through randomized controlled trials, which is the sort of gold standard of scientific work. In many cases, we can use RCTs or we can leverage the RCTs that have been done. We don't do them, but we we comb the research. And so we can see that this charity is doing work that is highly effective in the area of delivering bed nets, delivering medicines that are much needed, delivering treatment for children under five who die in ridiculous amounts from malaria, pneumonia, diarrhea, things that are highly treatable in more industrialized countries where medicine is much, and tertiary care and secondary care facilities are much more accessible. So we deal with a number of different charities that intervene in health. We deal with charities that deal with economic empowerment. So these are charities that give people both training and money to do the work. And then presumably, and hopefully the research is showing that because they get this money and this training, their standard of living and their health is greater. Their overall well-being is greater over a number of years. We support an organization called Give Directly that does cash transfers. And there's been a huge amount of research to show, I think over 300 studies, to show that direct cash transfers is a highly effective way of delivering money in a very efficient way of delivering money to people living in extreme poverty. I think this one example I'm about to give is really telling. We support two organizations that deal with sight, people who are either blind kids in particular or adults who have very impaired vision or are blind. And these charities, the Fred Hollows Foundation and SAVA, which is based in the United States, Fred Hollows is based in Australia, but all the work is being done in either Africa or South Asia. They can, believe it or not, remove a cataract in a child that has congenital cataracts that is, has never seen it for $50. Now, I know my wife, I'm just going to use her as an example. If you know anything about cataracts, everybody over 70 has cataracts. My wife is now going through the evaluation to get her cataracts removed. She's only slightly worse off than me. I haven't started that process yet. I try to stay away from doctors whenever possible, except my wife. But it's costing thousands and thousands of dollars for her to get her cataracts removed. A guide dog to train a guide dog in the United States to help someone who is blind, which is something we would all want. If we were blind, we would all want a really talented guide dog who is well-trained. It costs $40,000. 
to train a guide dog properly in the United States. And so I know it sounds ridiculous or not believable, but that you can help restore a child's sight for only $50. So we believe that there are poor people living in the United States. There are disadvantaged people living in the United States. My daughter is one of the senior administrators in Whatcom County, which is a county on the northern border of Canada in the United States. And she can tell me about all the homeless people that we need to get housing for. She can talk about the daycare issues. But the problem, as Kayla would readily admit, that's my daughter, is the cost of remediating those problems in the United States for either the government or for the nonprofit sector are extraordinary. So if you start with the premise that a life in Whatcom County, a child's life, is the same as a child's life in Uganda or Kenya or South Africa, then we believe that some money that people donate should be given to charities that are operating there. And so I think the work that we're doing at The Life You Can Save can sit by side by side other charity evaluators that looking at some of the same factors and other factors, but that are looking at interventions in the United States or Canada or the United Kingdom or Australia, because I think most people don't want to give all of their money overseas. And what we're suggesting to people, maybe it would be a good idea to consider giving some of your money to overseas charities that have been curated purposefully to do really high impact work. I think my wife and I donate all our money to charities that are working overseas, much to the chagrin of maybe my daughter and my sister-in-law who are working tirelessly in the United States to help people living in poverty. But I think we need all of these organizations who are fighting inequality across many, many different ways to be working together, which is why I think it's a privilege for me to be here with Art today because he's his organization is doing it in one way and we're doing it in a different way. And now it's time for our Giving Tips segment with Bennett Weiner, one of the world's most renowned experts on charity accountability and the COO of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance. I'd like to talk to you today about the unfortunate decline in volunteering in the United States. Several months ago, America reported that the number of people who were volunteering dropped 7%. And approximately 60 million people volunteer for various organizations. That's about 23% of the population. But the reason for the decline, I think, was expected. There were fewer people who were volunteering, of course, during the pandemic. And the numbers really have not increased to pre-pandemic levels at this point. So organizations are seeking additional help. And I'd encourage people to consider volunteering to charities that they're interested in. One of the things that we found out is that when we surveyed donors in terms of of various trust issues, they have indicated that 45% felt that volunteering their time was uh, one of the most popular ways of helping a charity. And certainly volunteering is needed by many organizations, not just for ladling the soup at the home shelter, but also for various administrative tasks and other things that they need assistance with. So, of course, if you do volunteer your time, check out the charity before you become engaged. See if they are a BBB-accredited organization and make sure that you can donate your time with confidence. Let me just offer that your approach is compelling. Truly, all lives are equal. And 
your idea about making sure that you are reaching the people who are most in need, but yet have an intervention that can actually help them, that can be scaled and can be done at a low cost, makes all the sense in the world, right? But then we, as humans, have this this desire to give based on a whole variety of different reasons, right? So some of us may be wanting to give because of what you're doing or or how you approach it. But other people may say, you know, like your daughter, I think it's our responsibility perhaps to give close to home. Yes, I recognize that America is the wealthiest country in the world and we have all sorts of advantages living here, but that it's important for our democracy that we try to do what we can to help those who are in need so that our democracy can remain afloat. There are others, like my wife, I was pointing out last week, she gives to whoever she comes across who she thinks she might need help because for her, it doesn't matter what the outcome is, although she hopes that the outcome will be great. But for her, it's more about getting into heaven. She thinks that God said that she should be giving money to people who are needed in need. And if she sees someone in need and they ask her for money, she's going to try to help. She's at the hospital right now with a young lady who is a friend of hers who doesn't have anyone in her life to help her deal with the illness. And she's there at the hospital with her, helping her deal with this medical issue. She stopped everything she's doing. That's what she believes she's here to do. So others of us give because we're driven by humanity or the thought that something could happen to us. And so we should try to look out for others. Some people give because of quid pro quo. If I give something, then my name is going to be on a building or something like that. So they're they're giving out of a reason to try to post a legacy at some point in the future. So there are whole sorts of reasons why we give. And it looks like that thought process can also be somewhat of a barrier to people focusing on giving in the way that you would approach it, Charlie. I don't know what you have to say about that, but it also looks like you've created space for people to give any way they want to, but also to consider the approach that you're providing, the approach that you're offering here as part of their giving portfolio. So I don't know, but maybe you want to comment on what I've said here. I do want to comment. I do agree with everything you said about why people give. Some of it is referred to as warm glow giving, meaning we get a feeling, a warm glow when we give in this way. So one could suggest, oh, it's really selfish because you want that warm glow and you're not necessarily looking at the outcome. But I don't look at people's motives like that. I look at the outcome of their what they do and not why they do it so much. But I think you're absolutely right. You're right. I'm leaving a space in my view of how people put together their giving portfolios for all kinds of giving, even though I personally believe that the most effective giving can be done overseas through the nonprofits that we curate. I believe that that doesn't cover the waterfront, so to speak, as all these reasons why people give. And since you wanted to talk about effective altruism, I think this is a good time for me to say that separates me, I believe, from most effective altruists. 
because effective altruism grew out of the question that Peter Singer and others ask, how do you do the most good? And I think the, the listener needs the most good. And it's hard for somebody who gives to say the Red Cross in the United States or to the American Cancer Society or to do- guide dogs for the blind to argue that that's the most good because somebody could come back and say, well, if you want to give to the guide dogs, why not give $8,000, 8,000 times as effective an organization to like save it where you can get a child's eyesight restored for $50, not restored, but actually get over their blindness. So I don't believe that the effective altruists are asking the right question. I mean, I think it's a good question to ask, and Peter Singer asked that question. But I don't think most people like Art, you said, are giving just to do the most good. What I believe is that people should consider what might be the most good and use their head and their heart to give to those causes that probably have the highest impact per dollar. But at the same time, they don't have to run away from the other things that they care about. And I think the effective altruism movement in general has made a mistake by solely asking people to give to the most effective nonprofits. Something else has happened to the effective altruist movement that I think the listeners should know about. They've extended this question to how you do the most good away from health and organizations doing that kind of work in the sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. Now they say maybe doing the most good is fighting AI because the dangers of artificial intelligence, even though it's not likely to happen, that it would go run amok and take over our lives. The If it did, if it did, there would be billions of people, billions and billions of people that would be impacted by this artificial intelligence in a negative way. So the best place to put your money, the most good, even better than fighting poverty in sub-Saharan Africa and health issues in sub-Saharan Africa would be to put your money against AI research or with AI research to try to figure out how to keep this movement from running amok. Other people in the effective altruist movement look at things that could happen like asteroids hitting the earth. And they also say that if it did, that would affect billions of people in future generations, tens of billions of people. So we ought to be putting our money to prevent those kinds of things. So there's definitely controversy within the effective altruist movement as to what one should do with their money to do the most good. There's disagreements about that. So it become kind of what I would describe as a heterogeneous movement. It's not simply saying intervene in sub-Saharan Africa in the health area or in some of these other high impact cost effective ways. But it also is suggesting that there's other ways to do the most good. There are people, I suspect, this is speculation on my part, that in the effective altruist movement who believe that fighting Donald Trump from getting elected again is the way they can do the most good or restoring American democracy or maintaining American democracy. Some people may believe that. So they will give their money to promote Democratic candidate in the five or six battleground states. So that is something they may think is the way to do the most good. So I don't try to answer the question for everybody about 
what is the most good? What I think the life you can save is doing is providing a set of nonprofits that you can be as guaranteed as anybody can be guaranteed that they will do an outstanding job of maintaining life, maintaining or improving people's livelihoods, really improving people's livelihoods, and that it can offer the warm glow if you can begin to imagine or what is going on when a mom sees her child getting her sight for the first time at age five years old. We have a video from Fred Hollows where a girl is at the doctor with the bandages after her surgery for her cataract removal. And the mom and the doctor are there and the nurse and the doctor removes the bandages and the mom is sitting there and the doctor holds up three fingers and asks the girl how many fingers he's holding up. And she says three, I get chills even telling the story now, but the mom obviously breaks into tears seeing her child be able to see for the first time. So for people that are compelled by that kind of thing, it may not be as good as like fighting asteroids or artificial intelligence, but to me, it's it's a really compelling thing. So the answer to your question, Art, is yes, I think there's lots of different ways of giving. And I think people should consider all of them and do it really carefully. By the way, only about 6% of American donations go overseas currently. Well, it's interesting that the effective altruism movement is in the middle of a shift, it seems, because one of the challenges I thought I saw with it was, you mentioned health, for instance. In order to come up with interventions that can then be scaled at a low cost, someone has to have done the research over a long period of time, generally, to have come up with that intervention. So if you look like look at organizations like the American Cancer Society or other cancer-fighting organizations, they've been working for decades to help us better understand how cancers work and develop different treatments through their research programs. And arguably, people could say, well, it's going to take them so long to come up with that, we would be better off taking our money today and putting it into something that we already know works and can be scaled at a low price. And so that was one of the challenges I saw with the movement, the effective altruism movement, which was we can't discourage people from investing in things for which there is no resolution yet. And that the resolution may come if it may come or it may never come, but we need to invest in it to give ourselves hope that we can at some point fix the problem. And so those dollars, someone might argue, are dollars that are wasted and could be spent fixing problems for others who have these issues that can be addressed now. But it looks to me like maybe the effective altruist movement is having a day where they are saying there are problems that need to be addressed down the road for which we don't have answers today, but we need to invest in them now. So it it looks to me like it's becoming less of an effective altruism movement, except for this idea that we are going to tackle what we see as some of the biggest issues. We're going to tackle some of the most damaging challenges ahead 
But other than that, there doesn't appear to be the same focus on cost per result as you might have seen in the past. Is that what you're basically saying? In essence, but I think the cost per result uh, for some EAs comes in a mathematical equation where they say that if you multiply the likelihood of an event happening times the number of people impacted by the event, that's how they're looking at the, the cost in that sense. But I do think that the movement is, like all social movements do, is developing many different tentacles. Yeah. There's still the health intervention, the empowering livelihood interventions in sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia that the Life You Can Save and Give Well champion. Give Well is clearly an EA organization. The Life You Can Save is Peter Singer's organization is EA yeah. certainly derived. But I am of the belief that we need, if we're going to reach a lot of donors and change that 6% number that's going overseas to 10% or 8% or 12% going overseas to highly impactful organization. That's the purpose of the life you can save. In addition to getting people to understand some of the ethical uh, reasons for doing that. So yeah. I think that there's still parts of the EA movement that are like that. By the way, the EA movement is not a centralized movement with a centralized leadership. There are leaders like Peter Singer, Will McCaskill, Toby Ord, and others. But it's not a centralized movement, and it doesn't have one single idea. But I've recently started talking about something I call effective hedonism, which I think actually people can resonate to more than they can resonate to the concept of altruism. Yeah, I want to hear about that. Tell me about that. Okay. Well, I don't believe most people think of themselves as altruists. Certainly, I don't think of myself as an altruist. I think of myself as somebody who takes their pleasure, their personal pleasure, really seriously. There you go. But over the years, I've discovered that one of the things that gives me the most pleasure is facilitating the well-being of other people. So I like to eat nice restaurants. I like to drink. I like to go for walks with my wife in nature. I like to go to a holiday where I can be in nature in really interesting places. But I also feel like it's a moral obligation. But more than that, it's just personal pleasure that leads me to want to take money that, as I said earlier in this discussion, I have no business having. Why do I have a lot of money? Not as much as some very rich people, but why do I have more money than I ever expected to have when I was a psychologist? And it's because of the structure of the way American businesses work. And so I have an obligation and a desire to pass that forward so I can actually enjoy the money I have without feeling guilty all the time. And so it really is for my own pleasure. So I recently published an article in Time Magazine called Why I Aspire to Be Effective Hedonist as a riff off of effective altruism, because I don't think most of you listening to this podcast are any different than me. I think you don't think of yourself as altruistic. You think of yourself as somebody who is more pleasure seeking and wants to be with your family and wants to do nice things if you can afford it and that you want to take care of your family and you want to do it in a way that works. And one of the ways that works for a lot of us, and I think there's a ton of research to show this, is by paying all of our good fortune forward. And that's why I call it effective hedonism. Well, you got me on that one, Charlie, and we're kind of at time, but now you've given me the ability to account for what I was saying earlier. By the way, Peter Singer, I want to add, liked, liked the article. Oh, did he? Okay. All right. He really, really liked it. Oh, very good. 
because Peter believes that people should maximize their well-being. And he believes that the one way to do that, as he's done, is to give away a lot of their money to people who can most use it. Well, look, we're at time, Charlie, but I, I do want to say that your effective hedonism does account for why a lot of people give. I mean, that's what I was basically saying earlier. We have our own reasons and we get our own pleasure from giving. So I like that term a lot. It'll account for a lot of how people give. But Charlie, let me just thank you for joining the show today. Uh, This is Charlie Bresler. Charlie is with an organization called thelifeyoucansave.org. And you can check it out, obviously, on the web and learn more about it. And for those of you who are listening to the podcast for the first time, this is the Heart of Giving podcast. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will subscribe. It's a weekly show. If you subscribe, you'll get all the new episodes as they come out on Tuesday. And of course, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to give.org, which is the website for the BBB Wise Giving Alliance, our sponsor. And you can make a gift there and it'll be put to great use, helping us make decisions about our giving. Thank you for listening and we'll see you back here next week. You've just listened to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To listen to our other interviews, visit heartgiving.podbean.com. That's heartgiving.podbean.com. Subscribe to our show on major podcast platforms. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests, not those of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance or program affiliates. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. This podcast is protected by Podbean's Terms of Service.